Greetings. At the end of this message, Pastor Johnson will provide additional commentary on the cups used in the Passover ceremony. Please continue to listen after Pastor Johnson's closing prayer. This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles uh, to our sermon text this morning, which is Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 through verses 26 through 29. Hear the word of God. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we study this passage this morning that you would help us to learn anew the meaning of these familiar words. Father, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit, for these words are spiritually discerned. We pray, Father, that you would enable us, even in the thought about this passage, to worship you and to glorify you as we consider your truth. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Whenever we have uh, covenant children in the church who are non-communing members of the church, baptized, given the sign of the covenant by virtue of their believing parents, whenever we have those children come to the session to be examined for communing membership, as we did uh, just recently, uh, we are concerned to learn any number of things that they understand. But there are two things primarily we are interested to know. One, of course, is their understanding of the gospel, that they know who Christ is, that they know what he did, that they know what that has to do With them, and that they are able to articulate a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they're able to tell us why they need Jesus and that they are trusting in Him. Now, granted, the faith of an eight or nine or ten or even twelve year old is not going to be that of the faith of a thirty or forty or fifty or sixty year old. But we do look, if if for simple faith, then certainly for genuine faith and a sincere trust in the Lord Jesus as their Savior. The second thing that we look for, particularly when children come to the Lord's table to be admit or come to the session to be admitted to the Lord's table, is an understanding of the Lord's Supper, communion. After all, the whole point is to move from non-communing to communing membership. 
And so since that's what it's about, we want to make sure that they understand communion, the elements that are involved, what those elements represent, what they don't represent, what it means to participate in the Lord's Supper, how you prepare for the Lord's Supper. And so we want to make sure that those who are coming for communion membership understand communion. But you see, it's not just for the children of the church to understand communion. We all need to understand communion. Now, I've been sometimes accused of being harder on, the, on our covenant children who come for membership than I am those adults who come to transfer into the church. And there may be something to that. Because if these are our children, we're raising them up. I have high hopes for them and what they know and what they believe. But it's not just for the children to understand the Lord's Supper. We all need to understand the Lord's Supper because it is extremely important. Well, as we come to these verses today, we come to the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, immediately we are up against an obstacle. These words are very familiar. They're familiar because they're often read and often read right here uh, prior to our observance of the Lord's Supper. This is one of my favorite passages to read for the institution of the Lord's Supper. So the first obstacle we're up against here is the very familiarity of these words can sort of create a deafness. We don't really hear them because they're so familiar. But what we need to do now is to try to hear them as if we're hearing them for the first time, as if we were sitting there with the disciples in that upper room, hearing and seeing, witnessing the institution, the beginning of the Lord's Supper. What that would mean in the first place is that you are in the context of the Passover. After all, this is the context in which these words are given. In the earlier passage we looked at last week, we saw that they had come together to observe the Passover and uh, that they, as Jesus had talked about in the previous passage, one of the disciples was going to betray him. Now, Matthew doesn't go into much of the detail of Passover itself, but if you were there, that's where you would be, observing the Passover. And we, we need to recognize also, uh, as Jesus has already told his disciples, that this is coming near the end of his life, that he's already told them he's going to die very soon. And so it's in that context that we hear these words, that the disciples heard these words for the first time. Now, as we look at this passage, I want us to break it up into three parts. First of all, and it fairly much follows the text. First of all, the bread. Second, the cup. And then third, which is more implied, the benefits. Uh, the benefits. And we'll look or think at least a little bit about what Paul said in the passage we read from 1 Corinthians. So, First place, we have the bread. We read in verse 26, as they were eating, they were eating the Passover meal, as we read about how it was instituted in Exodus. Uh, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and broke it. Uh, after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Well, let's look at what Jesus did with the bread. Let's look at what he said about the bread. First of all, what Jesus did, uh, he took the bread and after blessing it, or perhaps giving thanks for it, the word Matthew uses is the word, our word eulogy comes from, which if you just look at its parts, means basically to speak well of someone. We're familiar with a funeral eulogy, speaking good words about someone. Hopefully you recognize the person being spoken of in the eulogy. He's not describing someone you really didn't know. Uh, but to speak good words of. Well, to bless is, is how it's rendered here. 
uh, Jesus' blessing or perhaps giving thanks for the bread. And he breaks the bread and then he gives it to his disciples. Now, this is important. It's symbolic, but it's important. The breaking of the bread rep- representing the death of Christ on the cross. And then the distribution of the bread indicating symbolically that the benefits of that breaking were for those who received it. And so he breaks the bread and he gave it to the disciples. Uh, and he says to them, take, eat. They're receiving it. They're taking it. And of course, they're eating it was a symbolic way of receiving Christ. So even in the action, even in what Jesus did, there is communication of what would happen literally with Jesus' death and then his giving himself to them for eternal life. But let's look then at what Jesus said. He did say, take, eat. And then he said what has to be one of the most debated statements of four words in human history. This is my body. This is my body. What did he mean? All kinds of views and elaborate views have arisen out of the question, what does is mean? Well, one thing we can rest assured of, the disciples in that room would have never understood Jesus to be saying, this is literally my body. For one reason, his literal body was sitting there or reclining there holding it. His body was there with them, holding this piece of bread that he said, of which he said, this is my body. And so you have to ask, how would the disciples have understood that? Well, the last thing they would have understood Jesus to be saying is, this literally is my body. They would have said, no, it's not. You are literally your body. Your body is right here with us. But a number of views have arisen about what this means. Uh, one, of course, is the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. Uh, the substance is changed. It moves from one thing. It's transported from one thing to another. Transubstantiation. It crosses from one substance to another. They would say that the body, the bread, and the, the, the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. Not in its appearance, not in how it appeals to the senses, but in its essence. In its accidentals, it comes across as wine or juice and, uh, and, and bread. But in its essence, and what it really is, it comes across, uh, it actually has become the, the body and the blood of Jesus, so that you are actually feeding on his body and blood. Now, there are a number of difficulties with that view, not the least of which, again, is it goes far beyond what Jesus would have been understood by his disciples to be saying. After all, his body was still there with them. Um, They would classify that as a mystery, and yet, uh, while the Bible calls on us to believe some things that are beyond human comprehension or full understanding, like the doctrine of the Trinity, for instance, it never calls on on us to believe something that deceives our senses. It looks like bread. It tastes like bread. It feels like bread. I'd have to say it's bread. The other problem with the Roman view, and 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 really a a more serious problem, is the Roman view, if carried out to its logical and consistent conclusion, destroys your salvation. 
Why? Well, for this reason. Jesus had to become like us to save us. He had to become fully human. Now, he did not cease to be God, but he took to himself a human body, a human nature. He could become weary. He could be emotionally distressed to the point where he would weep. Uh, He ate. He drank. Jesus was a human being. He was as human as you are, as human as I am. What is true of our human bodies is that we can only be in one place at one time. Be helpful to learn how to be in several places at one time. Could get far more things done. But the fact is, our bodies are limited spatially. We can only be in one place at one time. Now, Jesus had to be fully human. His body was human, and his body died. His body was raised up. He bodily came forth out of the grave, and he bodily ascended into heaven, where he sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Right? We've Confess that just this morning. Where is the body of Jesus now? It's in heaven. It's with his Father. However, if, as the Roman Mass claims, the body of Jesus somehow mystically is present in the Mass, as they call it, in the Lord's Supper, then his body is in two places actually many places, because they're going on at the same time somewhere in the world, his body is in many places at the same time. That's an impossibility for true humanity. It means Jesus has no human body like mine, therefore he cannot be my substitute, therefore I am lost and still in my sins, and so are you, if that is true. Jesus' body is in one place at one time because it is a human body, glorified, yes, but human, and it is with the Father in heaven. This is a doctrine that goes far beyond the teaching of Scripture. Another view, of course, similar to it, but not quite the same, is the Lutheran view of consubstantiation. Uh, Jesus is present in and with and under the elements. Not quite the same view as that of Rome, But it does involve Jesus' real presence localized with the elements. But again, uh, this seems to have difficulty with what was actually going on in the Lord's Supper. Jesus' body was literally there, but in our case, it's, it's not. And you run into that same problem of the physical presence of Jesus in more places uh, than just one. The, the uh, Reformed view... Uh, we would have to say, is the spiritual presence of Christ. Now, that's been, that's been understood in a lot of different ways, uh, two primarily. Uh, Calvin's view was that while Christ was not physically present in the elements, he was spiritually present to the believer who fed on those elements with faith in Christ. And that by virtue of the believer's union with Christ, we are in union with Christ, as Paul teaches in his death and resurrection. We are, we died with him and been raised up to new life with him. By virtue of that union with Christ by the Holy Spirit, to feed on the elements in faith means to feed on Jesus in a very real and significant way. But Christ is spiritually present to the believer. Don't hear spiritually and think not really spiritually present to administer grace, nourishment, strength to the believer 
as he feeds in faith on the elements of the Lord's Supper. Now, other Reformed uh, views at different times, even in Calvin's day, but especially later, tended to move toward the spiritual presence of Christ uh, in, a, in a little bit different way, almost, ver- almost uh, nearing the so-called memorial view, that all the Lord's Supper is, is a way of bringing to remembrance, bringing to mind what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. And actually, the Westminster Confession of Faith leaves room, really, for either view. Uh, it can allow either view. There were significant uh, Presbyterian theologians in the 1800, men like Charles Hodge, uh, Robert Louis Dabney, who held more this view. Uh, in recent days, Calvin's view has made something of a comeback uh, to where uh, the emphasis on the Lord's Supper as a means of grace and not merely a way of helping us remember and impressing upon us what Jesus did, but an actual means of grace to nourish and strengthen us in participation has uh, has sort of risen to a more prominent position in uh, the last few decades. And then, of course, there is the view, sometimes attributed to the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli, that um, saw it merely as a memorial. It is just a way of remembering, reflecting upon the the death of Christ. And so those are the different views. I would say to you, my view is probably pretty much close to that of Calvin, uh, where the Lord's Supper is, in fact, a means of grace, that we do feed on Christ spiritually uh, as we come to the Lord's table by virtue, again, of our union with him by the Holy Spirit. Uh, I want to talk about that in just a little bit more from 1 Corinthians, which I think gives uh, a foundation for that view when we talk about the benefits of the Lord's Supper. That's what Jesus did and what he said. This is my body. I think we would have to say that Jesus meant this is my body symbolically, this is my body sacramentally, but it is not his body literally. It was and remains a piece of bread. The cup, the second thing that Jesus talks about here is in verses 27 and 28. And 29, what he did, well, it says that he took a cup, and when he had given thanks for it, uh, and there the word Matthew uses in Greek is the word that the word Eucharist comes from, to give thanks or thanksgiving. Uh, the word Eucharist is a biblical term. It arises out of Jesus giving thanks for these elements. I think it's, it's okay to refer to the Lord's Supper as the Eucharist, because it's simply drawing from this term that Jesus himself, or Matthew, uses as he describes Jesus' words uh, in the Lord's Supper. But he took, took this cup, and again, in the context of the Lord's Supper, probably the third cup of wine out of four uh, that reflected on the promises of God. This would have been the third cup, the cup of blessing, most likely. And he takes the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them. And again, what Jesus said, drink of it, all of you. Now, he says several significant things here about it. This is my blood. Now, again, as with bread, Jesus isn't saying this literally is my blood. Uh, For the same reasons that uh, this is my body does not mean it's literally his body. But it does, ref- it does signify, it does represent the blood of Jesus. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant. 
some of the parallel versions, the new covenant in my blood. What does that mean? You know, you hear that, we say that, this is, this is the blood of the covenant. Well, what does that mean? Well, I want you to look back to Exodus. Turn back to Exodus chapter 24. In verse 3, Moses comes. So much of this has to do with the Lord uh, having given his law, the Ten Commandments and other laws that flow out of it, to Moses. And Moses comes to the people, verse 3, told all, this is Exodus 24, verse 3, told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And he wrote this down. And then they had a sacrifice. Uh, and they took uh, this sacrifice, and in verse 6, Moses takes the blood from the animals that were slaughtered for the sacrifice, puts it in basins. Half the blood he threw against the altar or sprinkled on the altar. It could be rendered that way as well. Then he took the book of the covenant, the law of God, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Mo- this is significant. Here's the, here's, the, here's the real part we want to look at. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, or sprinkled it also on the people. You can translate it that way. And said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of the covenant. What did it do? Well, the people heard the word of the Lord. They said, All the Lord has said we will do. And Moses takes the blood of this animal and he sprinkles it on the people or scatters it on the people as a way of indicating the ratification, the putting into effect of this covenant. In one sense, it says, you know, we seal this covenant with our own blood. But whose blood was it? It It's the blood of an animal. It was the blood of a sacrifice. It was the blood of a substitute. You see, they were covered with blood, but not their own. They were covered with the blood of a slaughtered animal. And just like in the Passover, the blood of the lamb or the goat would cover their doorposts and protect them. Here, this same blood is scattered on them, which sealed their obligation. But at a deeper level, it indicated the blood of another sealed the covenant. Now, as we move forward, you know the history, uh, how Israel didn't live up to their promise, their pledge here. They'll do everything the Lord had promised. And that's why later in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, when Israel is uh, in bad shape, the northern kingdom is gone, Judah is uh, threatened and later taken by the Babylonians into exile, the Lord says in verse in Jeremiah thirty one thirty one, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. They, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my People. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. 
Jeremiah is pointing toward that new covenant, that new administration of covenant of grace through the Messiah. And when Jesus, in the context of the Passover meal, says to the disciples, this is my blood of the covenant. Jesus is saying, it's my blood that is about to be shed that will ratify the new covenant. Jesus was the lamb whose blood covered the Israelite homes in the Passover. Jesus was the animal whose blood was scattered on the people. Jesus is now the blood that would put into effect the new covenant in which the knowledge of God would belong to every person who was in Him, in which access to God and the law of God written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit would belong to every person who is part of that new covenant. This was something Israel had waited for for centuries. And Jesus says, in the context of the Passover, this is my blood. This is my blood of the covenant. But what would it do? Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So I will remember their iniquities no more. You see, Jesus is very closely linking what he's doing here with what Jeremiah promised. Just as Jeremiah promised in that new covenant, sins would be forgiven. The Lord would remember them no more. Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. Interesting he didn't say for all. They talk about limited atonement, that Christ's death was only for the elect. Let's mention that in passing. Poured out for many. What for? For the forgiveness of sins. Remember Hebrews. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Sin requires death. The wages of sin is death. The only way God can forgive your sin is for another's blood to be shed in your place because that's what you deserve. That's what justice requires. And Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins. Don't let the familiarity with that idea rob you of the thrill that those words should give you. That those words would have given Jesus' disciples, at least in hindsight, as they thought back on what he said, even if they didn't fully understand what he was saying to them that night. That Jesus is the Lamb through whose blood the new covenant, covenant of grace, covenant of forgiveness, would be put into effect. But he also spoke in verse 29. He said something else. I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, which is a way of referring to wine. I will not drink again of this fruit of the wine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Departure and anticipation. I will not drink again with you in this way. Jesus was in a sense saying farewell to his disciples. The fellowship, the camaraderie, the interaction they had enjoyed for these last three years or so, was drawing to an end. He would not eat with them, share the table with them again in quite the way that he had. He was in a sense saying goodbye to them, but he was saying also with anticipation until that day when I resume this fellowship with you in this way in my kingdom. Some suggested that he stopped with the third cup and never took the fourth cup in the Passover to leave it hanging, to leave it unfinished. I don't know if that's true or not, But he certainly anticipates drinking again with them, celebrating again with them in the kingdom that he is going to bring in. And so departure, yes, 
parting, farewell, yes, but also anticipation of that glorious reunion, the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven. Benefits. What are the benefits of the Lord's Supper? Well, some are obvious. It does remind us and make us think about the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that has some practical outworkings. On the one hand, it truly is for us a way of drawing spiritual nourishment from Christ. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, in the passage that we read earlier, 1 Corinthians 10. He says in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The word there is koinonia. Is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ, a participation in the blood of Christ? You see, Paul seems to indicate that this is more than just calling to mind what happened. And that's why he so strongly prohibits them from interaction with demons. Because there is a union, there is a connection being made when we come to the Lord's table, or for that matter, when they participated in pagan rites. Whether the God was real or not, demons are real. And to participate in their rites is to connect yourself, to involve yourself in that life, just as it is with the Lord's table. When you come to the table, you are participating in Christ. You are enjoying fellowship or communion with Christ. Verse 16, the cup of blessing we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break? Is it not a participation, a fellowship, a communion in the body of Christ? Absolutely. That's why I hold a view that says the Lord's Supper is more than just remembering. It is sharing in Christ. It's participation. It's fellowship. It's communion in Christ. It is a means to us of spiritual nourishment and strengthening for that reason. Not that it physically becomes the body and blood of Christ. It's something better than that. As we eat of those elements in faith, our union with Christ through the Holy Spirit enables us to feed on Him, to draw nourishment and strength from Him who is the vine into which we branches are connected. And so the Lord's Supper has the very practical benefit of being a way of strengthening and feeding and nourishing us in Christ. It also has a very practical benefit in helping us to keep short accounts, short accounts with God. Anytime we come to the Lord, we should come confessing our sin. We should come acknowledging our need of his grace, his forgiveness, pardoning of our sins, all the while acknowledging we're fully accepted because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus. But the Lord's Supper particularly, because we do prepare for it, reminds us to go to the Lord and ask his forgiveness. And we do try to encourage our children in this and encourage you adults in this. It also helps us keep short accounts with one another. Listen to what Paul says. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. There was a problem in Corinth, this fracturing of the body of Christ, this division, whether it had to do with who their favorite apostle was or church leader, uh, or, or TV theologian or whatever it might have been, as well as fraction and division in their participation, even in the Lord's Supper, which Paul says shouldn't be because the Lord's Supper symbolizes unity, that we are one body with one Savior. And so the Lord's Supper not only drives us to, to the Lord to seek his forgiveness, but it drives us to one another to make sure our relationships with each other are good. 
That if there's someone you need to go to and apologize to, it reminds you to do that. Or if there's someone that you need to forgive, someone you're angry with or bitter toward, and you need to forgive and give that bitterness to the Lord and ask him to help you love that person, it reminds you to do that. Because the Lord's Supper gives us the vertical dimension with the Lord, but it also reminds us of our horizontal dimensions, our relationships with one another as brothers and sisters who make up one body with one Savior. So a very practical benefit of the Lord's Supper is that it helps us keep short accounts with God, and it helps us to keep short accounts with one another. As I like to say when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper calls us to look back to what Jesus has done for us. It enables us to look around now in the present and remember that whatever we face, Jesus' grace is sufficient for us, But it also, as Jesus does here, forces us to look to the future, to remember that the Lord's Supper is is strictly a provisional supply to keep us going until that day when we all join with the disciples and with the Lord Jesus in that great wedding feast. And as Jesus says, we together with them drink it new with him in our Father's kingdom. May that day come quickly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord's Supper, Uh, so often a cause, sadly, of division uh, among believers. And yet, Father, we pray that it would be for us a means of unity, of union with you, union with one another, until that day that we no longer need it, because we'll enjoy the reality. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we um, look at Jeremiah tonight, it was uh, the question was raised earlier um, before the service tonight about the cups of wine in the Passover. Referred to uh, that this morning as we were talking about the Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover, and uh, the, the the four cups of wine that were taken during the Passover meal. Uh, and so I thought before we went into Jeremiah, if, uh, if some had that question, others might as well. I really didn't elaborate on that in the, in the sermon earlier. But the four cups of wine in the Passover service related to Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, to four promises uh, that are given there, and each, of, each cup represents one of these promises. Exodus 6, verse 6 uh, it says, say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The four promises represented by the, each of the four cups is verse six. I will bring you out. Uh, Again in verse 6, I will deliver you. Again in verse 6, I will redeem you. And then verse 7, I will take you to be my people. And the, the, the third cup, the cup of redemption, I will redeem you, is seen to be, by most scholars, the one that Jesus used when he instituted the Lord's Supper. Uh, it being the cup of redemption, of course, would be significant when he says this cup is the new covenant 
in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus himself is that redemption, as we did talk about this morning. And then um, holding off from the fourth cup, which would be the cup of consummation, representing verse 7, I will take you to be my people, um, that he would enjoy with them in the wedding feast of the Lamb, which would be the celebration and consummation of God's work of redemption uh, when we are with the Lord in heaven. And so I hope that helps uh, a little bit of background there uh, as far as those four cups, especially the third cup, the cup of redemption uh, or blessing, but also then the fourth cup, which some see as the one Jesus did not drink with them. And there's that, that break in the Lord's Supper and uh, reflecting the anticipation Jesus has of bringing that to a close when not only the disciples then, but we are with him in heaven.